Welcome to today's Harvard Business Review webinar, Own Your Day, How Sales Leaders Master Time Management. I'm Angela Heron, Editor of Special Projects and Research at HBR, and I want to thank all of you for joining us today. And I want to thank Citrix GoToMeeting for making this discussion possible. As we all know, sales managers work under intense conditions with constant demands for their attention. Many sales leaders will tell you that it's impossible for them to develop an effective routine for time management for themselves and for their direct reports because every minute is consumed with phone calls, emails, meetings, challenges, competing priorities, as well as selling and serving the customer. But in his new book, Own Your Day, executive sales and management coach Keith Rosen offers a plan to change all that. He says that you can learn time management strategies that will have an immediate positive impact on your life. And he says you can also coach your people to thrive and help them improve their daily productivity, performance, and personal accountability. Keith is with us today to share his framework for managing your time as a sales leader and a salesperson. He is a globally recognized authority on sales and leadership and a pioneer in the whole area of executive sales coaching and management he is also the CEO of Profit Builders, and he, his company was named one of the best sales training and coaching companies worldwide. Keith, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me today. Keith, I, as we jump in, I just have to ask you, you know, there's a lot of books out there about sales management. There's a lot of books out there, even more books about time management. So why did you decide to write Own Your Day? You know, and I appreciate the spirit of that question. And before I dig deeper into answering that, one of the greatest lies that we believe to be true is that we can truly manage and master our time. And in reality, for most people, it's time who manages and controls you. And that's why you need to shift your thinking to self-management rather than time management. The fact is, you can only manage yourself and have full control over the things you can in your life. And that is your behavior and actions, how you respond to your daily experiences, and ultimately your beliefs and thoughts. Everything else that you perceive you can control is simply an illusion. So This is the opportunity to tap into your own personal power and into the greatest power as human beings possess, which is the power of choice. Now, when you embrace this, you are on your way to choose how to respond in a proactive and thoughtful way rather than react in a more visceral and powerless way to the daily events that surround you. Today is that opportunity to make the choice to take back your day, take ownership of your time, and create the life you want for yourself. So in terms of one of the greatest questions, one of the most common questions that I hear from managers is, how do I lead people to live their fullest potential and manage my time, personal responsibilities, and business objectives while creating more balance and harmony in my life? And interestingly, there are two parts to mastering your day and self-management. There's the strategic part, that is what you do, and then there's the inner game of time management, that is the relationship you have with time and how you think about it, which is why I ask you, what belief gets in the way of developing your team, effectively managing your day, and achieving your business objectives? As I've heard from literally millions of sales leaders out there, their first visceral reaction is, I just don't have the time. 
as mentioned earlier, think about your relationship with time. Maybe it's a question you've never asked yourself before. You know, does time enhance you or consume you? Are you always trying to beat the clock? And secondly, think about your definition of a routine. I'll mention this in my story later on, but a routine is different from a calendar. A routine encompasses all the activities that you engage in, both personally and professionally, that move you towards your goal and creating the lifestyle you want to create. Now, while this is initially perceived as something that can be boring or monotonous or constraining, it's actually counterintuitive. That is, by filling your day with the priorities and responsibilities you have both personally and professionally, you're not focused on engaging in the activities that hold you back, but you're now engaging in the activities that move you closer to your goals while bringing more harmony and significance in your life. Now, if you notice, I don't suggest you can achieve life balance. Unfortunately, technology has made this concept obsolete since we're always connected by some type of digital device. Nor is there our personal life or our professional life. Uh, there's just life. So I used to believe years ago that you could achieve life balance. And this, of course, was BC, before children. And being a very literal person, if you look at the phrase life balance, it implies equilibrium, a perfect balance between your work life and your personal life. Now, over the years, my definition has changed now, where life balance is, is more about managing the imbalances in your life while bringing more harmony and significance into your life. And that's the objective of owning your day. So I'm sure many of you have heard this expression before, time is money. Or is it? Think about this expression. Uh, to tee it up and really drive this point home, I remember years ago, uh, and this really speaks to what motivated me to write my last book on self-management, it goes back to a public event I was part of where I was a panelist on stage in front of about 1,500 sales leaders, executives, and CEOs. Uh, Joe Connolly was the moderator. And a question from a person in the audience uh, came to me, and I was asked, so what is the secret of time management? Well, before I responded, I turned to the audience and I asked everyone a question. And I asked everyone, how many of you manage your money in some way, shape, or form? That is, you have a financial advisor, you have a stockbroker, you manage it yourself, or you keep it under your mattress. And as you can imagine, about 99%, if not 100% of the hands in the audience raised were raised. And then I asked them, how many of you manage your money the same way you manage your time? That is, you have a routine that dictates the daily activities that you need to engage in every single day that not only moves you closer towards your personal goals and the lifestyle you want to create, but towards achieving your business objectives. Not one hand in the audience went up. That, to me, signaled there was clearly a need in the marketplace for a book specifically for sales leaders and people leaders. You see, the routine is, in essence, the bank that protects your time, which leads us to the system that will help start refining the activities that are needed to be scheduled into your routine. And I refer to that as your personal navigation system. In order to create the life you want, that's where it starts. Now, think about the navigation system you may have in your car or on your smartphone. 
What does it do? Basically, you plug in the coordinates and it takes you to your final destination with the least amount of time, traffic, in the most efficient way. Well, imagine if you could apply that to your life into your personal navigation system to take you to where you want to go. So with self-management, consider the big picture. We've heard that expression begin with the end in mind. I like to conclude that with, then we need to focus on today. So let's review this now. Most people start with the ground up. They start with, okay, here are the results we need, and then we need to plan for it and strategize around it, and we're going to set our goals and you know, look at our values and priorities and then create a personal vision. Actually, this process is flawed. I actually like to start from the top and work our way down. Uh, and what I find is if you work from the bottom and work your way up, then people wonder why they don't achieve their goals. And the reason is, especially when it comes to your personal goals, they're often the wrong goals because they're not focused on your personal priorities, values, and vision. So that's why I like to start from the top. So if we look at the top here, look at your vision. Now, your vision can be your professional vision. It could be your corporate vision. It could even be your team vision, as well as what you want for yourself in your life and a vision for uh, – to make it simplistic is basically the snapshot of your ideal life or your career. So it's like taking a blank canvas with uh, all the colors uh, on a palette that you get to paint your masterpiece of what your ideal life and career looks like. Well, from there, you'll notice that there are certain priorities and values that are embedded into your vision. Now, once you know what your priorities and values are, you want to create you know, value-based goals rather than need-based goals. Because your goals, again, are a manifestation of your priorities and values, which ultimately create the vision of what you want. Well, once you have your goals, we need to break it down further to your strategy. Okay, here's what we need to do to achieve our business objectives. Unfortunately, most leaders stop right there. We need to go further and break it down to the activity. And the activity is not just what you do, but it's also how you do it. Now, if you think about this, if you go down all the way to the bottom, notice what happens right after the activity. That's your routine. You see, all roads go back to self-management. Everything we just discussed here lives in your routine, and the byproduct of following your routine is you get to achieve the results and level of success that you truly want in your life. Now, what I'd like to do now is share with you several strategies that you can use immediately that are going to help you achieve your goals and allow you to create ownership of your day. So this first strategy is very simple. Simply put, treat everything as an appointment, okay? Everything takes time. If it takes up time, then it needs to be scheduled into your routine. After all, we only have a certain amount of time in your day, so it needs to be scheduled, whether that means getting ready in the morning, getting the kids to school, commuting time, checking emails, administrative work, business development, recruiting or onboarding, returning calls, meetings, both internally or with customers, uh, time with your family, your spouse or significant other, time to do the things that bring you joy and even scheduling time for self-care, which to me is non-negotiable, which is taking care of yourself, whether that means eating healthy or exercising. This needs to be part of your routine. Otherwise, it's very easy to forget and blow off all these activities that are priorities for us. And that is why if you don't have the appointment, you really don't have the commitment.
The second strategy, which I'd like to discuss, has to do with time blocking. Now, simply, it's the process of blocking out a specific amount of time in your day to complete or engage in a certain task or activity in a certain time. This is a critical step in creating a highly effective routine. But let's distinguish here between a routine or consistent activities compared to managing a task. I often find people collapse the two. So what if I told you that you can practically eliminate your to-do list? Well, here's how. First, a routine is, or routine activity is something you engage in fairly consistently. And that could be anything from onboarding, checking emails, having internal meetings, meeting with your team, coaching your team, uh, responding to phone calls. Where a task is something that you don't do consistently, nor know when that task may show up. For example, going to the doctor if you're sick, getting a flat tire, changing a light bulb. We don't know when these things are going to happen. Therefore, we can't plan for them until they do happen, and then they can be scheduled into our calendar. Now, I want you to look at your task list or your to-do list. How many of those things in your to-do list are actually things that you engage in with some level of consistency? As a salesperson, it could be business development. As a manager, as mentioned, it could be coaching, training, performance reviews, uh, and personally, things that you still may want to do, even if they may not be something you do daily, but weekly or monthly or even yearly, like going for a physical or cleaning out the gutters on your home or servicing your air conditioning unit. So as you can see, many of the items on your to-do list are actually things that you do with some level of consistency or recurrence, and therefore remove it from your to-do list and schedule it into your routine. By doing so, you'll notice your to-do list will diminish greatly. The third strategy to taking charge of your day is planning for the worst. Now, I'm an eternal optimist. However, let's face it. Nothing takes one minute, and most things don't even take five minutes. I'm a very literal person. You can spend more than five minutes just crafting or corresponding to an email. And we learn this lesson at a young age. For example, there you are in the kitchen, maybe preparing dinner for your family. Your youngest child comes up to you and says, hey, daddy or mommy, I need to talk to you. And what's your response? You're on the phone with someone. You say, honey, one minute. Well, children are also very little. A minute passes, and I remember my son actually counting to 60 and coming 60 seconds and coming back to me and saying, "Okay, Daddy, it's been a minute." To which I responded to my son Jet, that's my, my son's name. I said, "Hey, Jet, I need a few more minutes." Well, what do you think happens? A few more minutes pass, and there he is again in front of me, asking me again, "Hey, Daddy, I have to ask you a question." And so we start developing this unrealistic relationship with how long things actually take. So instead of planning for the best, what if you plan for the worst? For example, if you have to drive 50 miles to an appointment, many people tell themselves, well, I can get there in 20 minutes. Not happening. You may have a proposal to do and you think you could knock it out. Best case scenario, one hour, when it really may take you three to five hours. And here is where we set ourselves up for failure and poor self-management. After all, you can't play a round of golf in one hour. You can't drive from New York to Florida in five hours, even with all your good intentions. Instead, promise to produce what you think in the worst case scenario. 
This way, by under-promising and building buffers, it allows you to then over-deliver without the stress. Now, here's the fourth critical strategy to master your day in your life, and it happens to be one of my favorites and the most overlooked strategy, which leads people to believe it's impossible to create a routine that they can follow consistently. And when I ask people why, they tell me because things come up and I'm either pulled away from something or there's some challenge or fire I need to attend to. The solution, plan for the unplanned. Sounds paradoxical. Well, let's explore this at a deeper level for a moment. I want you to think about how much time you have in a typical workday. Now, let's say, for example, you put in a 10-hour workday. Now, I want, you to, I want to introduce you to something that I refer to as externalities. And these are basically external forces at work that, unless you had a crystal ball, you would not see them coming. They fly under our radar. And these things could be anything from a personal emergency, a burning issue that you have to deal with with a client or an employee, uh, a meeting that goes longer than expected, uh, traffic, any of the above. So now, if you look at these externalities, these things that basically you feel you cannot plan for because you don't see them coming, think about how much time these externalities eat up in your day. Now, most people, if they were being honest, would say anywhere from one hour to two hours to three hours to five hours. I've actually had people say, Keith, my whole day is filled with externalities. Okay, well, let's say for this example, you put in a 10-hour day and you have three hours of externalities in your day. Things that, again, in a million years, you would never see coming, but still take time out of your day that need to be handled. Hey, you know, even life gets in the way sometimes. So now let's do the math. 10-hour day, three hours of externalities. How many hours do you actually have to plan in your day? You only have seven. What do most people do? They plan for 10 hours, and instead of honoring what their day looks like, they set themselves up for failure because they don't achieve everything on their daily plan. They then beat themselves up, make themselves wrong, and not getting the things done, hence believing they can't manage their time or have a routine. So here is your choice, whether you like it or not. You can be realistic and say, hey, you know what, I have a 10-hour workday, but if I was to be honest with myself, I know regardless of how good I plan, I'm going to be hit with certain things that are going to take me, on average, three hours a day. So I truly only have seven hours to plan out my day. Or you can resist this belief and still plan 10 hours a day and set yourself up for failure and not achieve all the activities or tasks that you set out for that day. So that is ultimately your choice. And that's why distractions are events that you didn't plan for. The answer, plan for them. Now, the fifth strategy to create a highly effective routine that honors your priorities is this. So imagine for a moment that you have a puzzle in front of you. And imagine that each piece of the puzzle is the same size and the same color. So wherever you move the pieces, the final picture is always going to be the same. So now let's go back to time blocking. You know, we talked about scheduling blocks of times for activities that are aligned with your goals and scheduled at certain times in the day. So let's go back to my point earlier that a routine actually gives you more flexibility, and here's why. 
if something comes up, those pesky externalities that show up, you now have built in the buffer time by planning for the unplanned. You've done that into your calendar and into your routine so you can handle them and be more proactive than reactive. So now you actually can move some blocks of time around because at the end of the day, if you've allocated seven hours plus the three hours for unplanned activities that we talked about, wherever you move around these pieces of the puzzle, wherever you move around the certain time blocks that you've scheduled in your day, it still comes out to the same amount of time in your day, which paradoxically gives you more flexibility to still get everything done. That's why while the content of your routine may change, the foundation does not. Now, finally, here, here's where we are. The sixth and final strategy to start mapping out your day and the lifestyle you want to create for yourself. After all, that is your routine. Your routine is a manifestation of the life or the lifestyle you want to create for yourself. So I encourage you to do this activity before crafting your routine. It will make your life infinitely easier. So what I'd love for you to do after our time together is take out a blank piece of paper, walk around with it all day, and break it down from the time you wake up all the way down, maybe in 15 or 30-minute intervals, all the way down until the time you go to sleep. And track what you do and how long things are actually taking. And if you need to do this for more than one day because each day be, may be slightly different than the next, then do so. That's absolutely fine. However, by doing this, you will notice several things. First, you do a lot more than you think you do in a day, which are uncovering things that were outside of your line of vision. Secondly, you'll notice that things actually take longer than you thought they did to complete. And now you get a sense of how much buffer time you need when planning for the unplanned. Once you've gone through this exercise, now you can pull out your diary or your electronic calendar and start putting together a realistic routine. Speaking of routines, here's what most people's routines actually look like. That's right, other than a few meetings scheduled, it looks fairly blank. This is an example of an ineffective routine because it's not taking into account all of the activities you engage in each day. And as we discussed, if it takes up time, it needs to be scheduled. And this leads to believing that you have more time than you think you have in a day. The consequence here is that it results in you overcommitting or taking on certain tasks or deadlines because you have an unrealistic picture of what you really have on your plate. Now take a look at this routine. Now, I know these activities may not be activities you engage in, but it still illustrates what an effective routine could look like. Now, this person scheduled all the activities they engage in and even color-coded them to see when they are engaging in them in those specific times. 
And if you notice, the blank spaces are those buffer times where they planned for the unplanned or those externalities that are going to show up inevitably throughout your day. Now, this is a realistic picture of what your day looks like. And as you can see, it's a lot busier than you may have thought. But by doing this, it now prevents you from overcommitting. So when someone asks you for assistance or to get something done by a certain time, your first reaction now is, let me check my calendar and get back to you. And this prevents you from instantly committing to something that you may not be able to do. In essence, the blank routine, that's lying to you. This routine is actually protecting your time, your lifestyle, as well as your peace of mind. Now, while all of these strategies will help you become a master of your day and bring more harmony and significance into your life, as a manager, how do you then support others to do the same? Here is how you can take these six key principles we've discussed and coach your directs, or other people to do the same. Now, I'm going to take just a few minutes to share what a conversation can sound like that is how you can coach someone around improving how they can manage their day and themselves. But remember, before you start coaching them and asking them open-ended, well-crafted questions, you need to set the intention of the meeting. After all, if people don't know what you as their boss what your intentions are, the human condition is always to default to fear. So if you do not set expectations, create alignment, and share people what your intentions are, and you start asking them these questions, which I'm about to share with you, they're not going to understand. They're going to default to fear. And in their mind, they're thinking, why is my boss asking me these questions? Am I in trouble? Did I do something wrong? by being micromanaged. So to avoid that, you need to set expectations up front. So let's say you see someone on your team who may be struggling with honoring their commitments and priorities. First, take the time to enroll them by saying something like this. John, what I want for you is to be able to be as productive and as efficient as you can so you can eliminate the stress you said you felt and achieve the goals and level of success that you really want. And that's why I personally would love to support you any way I can, and I have some ideas that if we can sit down and work on this together, would help you become more successful, help you honor all of the commitments you make, and reduce the overwhelm you may be feeling. Are you open to discussing this with me? So if you notice, I set my intentions, I shared with them what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and most importantly, what's in it for them. Once you hear a yes, here are some questions that you can use to facilitate this conversation. Now, I'm going to go through these questions fairly quickly, given our time constraints, but at least you'll get a good sense of how you can position this conversation, as I just did, and the questions you can use to facilitate it. So once you've enrolled them in having this conversation, here's the first question you can ask. Walk me through how you manage your day. But don't just stop there. Ask. Can you share your calendar with me? You want to be really tactical. You want to see exactly how they're managing their day. You need to look at their calendar. Number two, 
how do you go about making the time to focus on your priorities? Number three, how effective are you at adhering to your time blocks and your calendar? Number four, what could get in the way of consistently honoring your calendaring commitments? And by the way, notice that every single question here is open-ended, not closed-ended, and it's non-loaded. That is, it doesn't have your agenda baked into it. Number five, how do the time blocks you have in your calendar align with your priorities and goals? Number six, how would you define routine? Now, this is a great example of coaching to phraseology, because if you throw the word routine, success, stress, overwhelm, selling value, the customer's pushing back, we have our definition of that, but we are unsure of what other people's definition of what those phrases or words mean. So in other words, if I say, don't you want to be more successful, I'm assuming that the word success means the same to me as it does to them. Just like if I don't ask this question, how would you define routine? I'm assuming that my definition of routine is the same as theirs. So a great little nugget here is that when you're coaching people, coach language, coach phraseology. You'll find so many coaching opportunities just by doing that. The follow-up to that is, well, how do you feel about creating a structured routine? You see, what you've done so far is you've assessed where they are. Now you're looking to create a new possibility. How much of your calendar includes all the priority activities you engage in each day? Number eight, what would it you like to have more time to do each day, both personally and professionally. Number nine, what needs to change in order to honor all of your commitments and priorities? That's an action-based question to get the person thinking about what they can do differently to create a new possibility. And finally, the question that you can use to hold them accountable and be what I call their accountability partner is this. How can I best support you and become your accountability partner to ensure you're adhering to your routine so that you can achieve what matters most to you? Now they're going to set the rules of how they want you not only to support them, but how they want you to hold them accountable. If they set the rules, you're following their rules. Now you're never the bad guy. And I know how managers often struggle with holding people accountable because they worry about either hurting their feelings, getting into a confrontation, or having an ineffective conversation with them. So by asking these questions, you're basically letting them come up with how they want you to support them. That also bleeds into observation. And again, that is another opportunity to set your intentions and expectations. Death side observation is a great opportunity to see how effectively they're managing their calendar, they're managing their routine, and how they manage themselves in their desk and their workspace. But you can't just walk up to them and start observing them because, if you, can, if you don't set the intention, they're going to think you're micromanaging them and they're going to go to fear. So you need to, again, enroll them in what you're doing, why you're doing it, and what's in it for them. Now, once you've gone through this conversation, once you've seeked to understand their point of view, you've uncovered the gaps, you've uncovered the root cause, you now can coach them around the gaps or the lessons you've learned and what you're modeling for them. And that's just one example of a conversation that you can facilitate. Now, 
while we've talked mostly about best practices as it relates to owning your day and owning your time and creating your ideal life, let's face it, there are some things that get in the way of creating a highly effective routine. Some we've discussed, but here is the one I feel is the greatest barrier of all, and that is adrenaline. So, are you an adrenaline junkie? Are your people, are your direct reports adrenaline junkies? Now, let me define that. When it comes to work, hobbies, or sports, or other leisurely activities, or even just getting out of bed in the morning, we all need a certain amount of adrenaline. After all, going to an amusement park, or taking a bike ride, or playing a sport, that's, that's healthy adrenaline. However, like too much of anything, it can become healthy and addictive, especially when we bring it into our lifestyle and into our workplace. Now, while this is certainly a longer conversation and an opportunity to coach your people around this and how they can tap into a healthier energy source, how about we do a quick adrenaline assessment to see how you score. So if any of the following statements apply to you, if they are true to you, or always true, or even sometimes true, check the virtual box in your mind. So here we go. Number one, I find myself procrastinating things until the very last moment and feel that I work best under pressure. Number two, I frequently attempt to beat the clock and arrive late to meetings and events because of my busy schedule. Number three, I get energized from chaos and solving problems. It gives me a sense of purpose. Number four, the idea of having nothing to do frightens me. I resist boredom. Number five, my life and workspace is cluttered and disorganized. Number six, I have a hard time saying no. I often overcommit and I am a yesaholic. That is, I say yes before thinking through whether or not I can honor my commitments. I jump from one incomplete task to the next. I'm interrupt-driven and easily distracted. And finally, number eight, it's difficult for me to delegate or let go of certain things that someone else can do. So how did you score? If you scored one out of eight, two out of eight, or eight out of eight, welcome to the club. You're an adrenaline junkie. Now, of course, there are degrees of being an adrenaline junkie, but I wanted to put this in front of your line of vision because it impacts your success, your, your stress level, and your productivity, as well as how you can own your day and bring more harmony into your life. You see, we talked about the healthy adrenaline, but the unhealthy adrenaline is like a roller coaster ride. You know, the highs are high, you get something done, and then you crash. And what do you think we learn this? Quite often we've learned this in school or in college. After all, if we've ever cramped for a test the night before or pulled an all-nighter or spent the night writing a, a term paper and handed it in the next day and got a good grade, think about the lesson we learned. And it's a costly one. We learn that we can do it. We learn that we can wait until the last minute to get things done. And then we take this costly lesson and we bring it into our jobs. And that's where it becomes a great cost to us.
So if you look at what we can do, and this is where tapping into your awareness is where we begin. Because when you have an awareness around this, you now have choice. You see, as human beings, we tap into any available energy source, even if it causes suffering, stress, or difficulties. And that's exactly what adrenaline is. It's an energy source. And like any energy source, we get a payback from it. After all, I'm talking as an ex-adrenaline junkie, working off adrenaline worked for me. I got stuff done. But it eventually came as a cost to my heart, my spirit, my soul, and my peace of mind. So that's why we need to tap into something healthier. Because if you look at a adrenaline and you look at a routine, it's like mixing water and oil. You can't have both. So think of it this way. If you're working off adrenaline, there's no way you can honor an effective routine. However, if you're honoring an effective routine, there's no way that you can work off adrenaline. That's why we need to get off the adrenaline train and tap into a healthier energy source. And I'm calling that healthier energy source momentum. Consistent actions, consistent activity to yield consistent results rather than inconsistent actions or inconsistent activities which creates the inconsistencies and stress in our life. So here we are, and as we begin to conclude our time together, I'd like to share with you a few things to keep in your mind and in front of your line of vision. Now, if you're a sales manager or any type of people manager, think about the answer to this question. What is your primary objective as a leader? Well, it's not to hit your business objectives. It's to make your people more valuable. Now, what's the byproduct of making your people more valuable? You achieve your business objectives faster. And to make your people more valuable and to achieve more through others, it starts with making yourself more valuable. And you do that by becoming a transformational leader and coach. And to do that, I have good news and I have bad news. I'm going to share the bad news with you first. The bad news is, if you're a people manager, executive, or CEO, every single problem, challenge, or upset that you experience in your career and with your team is your fault. That's right. I'm here to tell you the truth. After all, I am not paid to be popular. Avalanches roll downhill. It starts with you and affects everyone else. But here's the good news. The good news is that every single problem, challenge, and upset that you run into with your team or in your business is your fault. That's the good news because it's 100% in your power. That's the great news. I remember a few years ago running into an old client of mine, and we began chatting, and I asked her, so how are things going? Her response was, well, Keith, things are actually getting better. Now, as a coach, I had to ask, why? What's changed? And her response, which is still so rare today, was, because, Keith, I'm getting better. The lesson? 
if we want our direct reports to change, if we want the people around us to change, our peers, cross-functional teams, if we want our people, our teams to be more accountable, to be open to coaching, to be open to personal development, to be open to creating a routine, to increase their self-awareness, to be open to feedback and become more organized, to master self-management, change starts with you. Now, we're going to start wrapping up, but I'd like to share with you a few bonus items that I want for you to take advantage of, and then we're going to move into an open Q&A. So the first thing I'd like to share with you is an opportunity to download my book, uh, The Eight Steps to Creating a Coaching Culture. And if you jump on my website at www.keithrosen.com, you can go ahead and download that for free. The second free resource I'd like to share with you is three free chapters of my new book, Own Your Day. If you go to ownyourday.com, you'd be able to go ahead and download three free chapters, which really reflect many of the concepts we talked about today. So as we conclude, remember these final thoughts. Your daily routine influences your actions. Your actions shape your results, and your results determine your success. That's why, if you want to create a great life, then simply schedule one. Now, here we are at the beginning, not the end, because this is where it all starts. This is where you make a commitment to change and embrace what we discussed. So, I have a question for you. There are three rabbits sitting on a log. One rabbit decides to hop off. How many are left? The answer is three, because there is a difference between deciding and doing. We can all decide that these are some great concepts, make perfect sense, great tools to use. And then we can go back to our day and back to the office and fall right back into our daily, older destructive habits. Or you could make the choice and the commitment to change and honor what we talked about, knowing that if you do so, it will truly transform the quality of your life and the quality of your career. So then how do you truly transform talent? How do you change a culture? How do you transform your people? If you think about from a global perspective, changing a culture in your company, that can be very overwhelming. It's like turning a battleship. So how do you change a culture? How do you transform talent? One person at a time. One conversation at a time. So remember, the ABCs of leadership, always be coaching and don't step over the opportunity to coach people around their time. And remember, when you own your day, you truly own your life. So thank you for your time. I wish you all extreme success. And now we are going to go ahead and open up the lines to you. This is your time for some Q&A. 
That's right, Keith. And we have a lot of questions. That was a great presentation. And um, I, let me jump in with something because I, I, I'm seeing a line of questions that says, great presentation, but because that's how we always all deal with change. I'd like to change, but. So let me ask you, uh, some people are asking, you know, you know I, I understand everything you're saying, but we do have a quota. And, and the way that we focus on our quotas, we have to be accountable all the time to the clients. And we have some very demanding clients. So what do you do with that? Clients are unscheduled unschedulable, someone says. Yes, and uh, that is uh, a great question, and I love the spirit behind it. Certainly not the first time I've heard that. So <laughs> I want you to think about it from this perspective. We have demanding clients. After all, I have clients too. Thousands of clients over the years. Tens of thousands of managers. Tens of thousands of salespeople who I've coached globally in over 50 countries and on five continents. And I've heard this wherever I go. And I will share with you what I share with them. If you think about your demanding clients, and if you think about the response time that they expect from you, who do you think conditioned them for that? That's right, look in the mirror. We did. So if you get an email or a text and you respond within a minute's time, you have just set the expectation that that's what that client can expect immediately. Conversely, and I will share from my personal experience with my clients that are just as important to me as they are to you, and granted, in my organization, my sales team, we have a quota as well, we set and manage expectations with our clients when it comes to response time. Now I understand, listen, this is not a 100% solution, but if it helps you 50% of the time, then that's 50% more effective that you can be and you can take back 50% of your day. And what I share with my clients, especially with my one-on-one -on -one coaching clients, when I'm onboarding them is, listen, my response time to any text or email or phone call is 24 hours. And I set that expectation up front right away. Now, the reality is, do I often wait 24 hours to respond to them? Well, sometimes if I'm traveling, if I have um, a webinar or, or a workshop or seminar that I'm delivering live, I may not be able to get to them until the next day. But for most of the time, I'm able to respond to my clients sometimes in five minutes, an hour, two hours, three hours, or at least the same day. My point is, I've set and managed expectations up front. So I would challenge anyone to look in the mirror and ask themselves, well, why are my clients demanding? Get below the what and uncover the why. And I will tell you right now with great certainty, it's often because we have set that unrealistic expectation up front. The good news is you can always reset expectations with your clients. And again, I say that with great sensitivity to the fact that you all have quotas to hit. I will also share with you, for those leaders that are on the phone, if you are at the end of your quarter or at the end of your month and you have deals that need to be closed and it's a last-minute deal where you feel you have to jump in and take over or save the day, I'll tell you right now, you already missed the coaching moment. So thanks for that question. That was a great answer. And let me follow on because there's another line of questioning that a number of people have followed, which is basically talk to us about how you handle someone in the office who, who hijacks your routine. 
And, and so I think really here they're talking about uh, two things. One is, as you start to change the way you address your own time management, how do you talk about that with your colleagues? And what do you do with those colleagues who just continually sort of disrespect what you're trying to do? Yes, those people, you know, how, do, how, how dare they do that to us, right? Uh, I call this managing the expected interruption. And there's a couple of ways to do this. As a matter of fact, uh, I recently just uh, put on a teleconference, uh, a team coaching call, and the same question came up, Keith. And it goes both ways, right? It's, Keith, I have this salesperson or this direct report that comes to me you know, with every challenge. Or conversely, Keith, I have this salesperson that comes to me and constantly wants to share every win that they have, whether it's a new booked meeting, whether it's a great call that they had, whether it's an on-site meeting that they had, whether it's a deal they want to close. They just want to come to me with every win. What do I do? I don't want to blow them off and I don't want to discourage them. How do I handle that? Well, the strategy works the same way. And it's all about the language here. So rather than dilute the power of your message and make them feel bad and wrong for coming to you, here's what it could sound like. If Sally, for example, came to me and I'm in my office and I'm working on something and she says, hey, Keith, I need you. I need you. I got this issue. I'm, I, I need your help right now. Now I'm in the middle of something. Now, I have a choice, right? I could drop what I'm doing, which basically interrupts my day and throws off the flow, or I could respond this way. Hey, Sally, you know, I'm really glad you came to me, and right now, though, I'm, I'm in the middle of something that's really timely, and it has a deadline on it. However, I really want to take the time to work with you on it, and I don't want to do this a disservice and ensure we spend the time going through this together. So I respect you coming to me. How about we carve out some time later on today so when we have the time to go through this together without feeling rushed? So if you notice what I did is I acknowledged what I'm doing. I acknowledge that what she has is important and important to me. I acknowledge that I didn't want to do the conversation a disservice. And I also acknowledge that, hey, I want to help you, so let's carve out some time where we're both not rushed. Most people will respond in a very positive way to that. And again, there's no absolutes, and I will guarantee that this strategy will probably work about 80 to 90% of the time. Now, here's the real cool thing that's an added bonus, which will also give you back your day for those managers here, and that is this. If someone comes to you at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 o'clock in the afternoon, and you don't have time uh, to talk to them until the end of the day, say four or five o'clock, and you go to that person and you say, hey, Sally, you know what? I'm, I'm ready to talk to you. I know we carved out some time. You know what you might hear inevitably? Oh, Keith, you know what? I really appreciate that. However, I spoke to one of my peers and they helped me with it. So I already took care of the issue. Or, hey, you know what, Keith? I'm really glad that you came to me and I appreciate that, but I took care of it myself. What a novel concept, allowing your people to actually do their job. Someone else asked us, you know, if you have taken in the system and it's working for you, you're ready now to really work with your team on, on making the system work for them, who do you focus on? Do you go to your higher performers and say, hey, I can, I know that you're a little stressed, let me help you with this, or do you, do you go to the people who are struggling the most? I mean, one person says, well, don't you want to make an Example of somebody to show them the system really works. How do you decide who to focus on? You'll well, 
let me speak broadly for a second. Um, just like every single person on your team needs your attention and gets coached, no one needs to be singled out. You don't only coach the underperformer and you don't only coach the top performer or the mid performer. You need to coach everyone because you need to send a consistent message that coaching is a priority and it's a gift you give to people. So if you only do this with your underperformer and then you go to your top performer, they're going to look at you and say, I don't want your help on this. You only went to the underperformer because they have problems. I'm the top performer. I don't need fixing. You've actually positioned it as a broken wing mentality that coaching is something you do to fix someone who's broken, which is not the case. So that's why you need to do this with every single person on your team. Now, where do you start? Uh, I would say actually starting by either emailing or having a conversation or a meeting with your team, letting them know Great example for enrollment again. Hey, everyone, here's what we'll be doing. Here's why we're doing it. And here's what's in it for you. So you can expect me sending you out an uh, email invite to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with each of you. So now what you've done is you've blanketed the message across your entire organization or your entire team. Everyone know it's coming, your top performers, your mid-performers, your underperformers. So it doesn't matter where you start. You want to start with your underperformer? Start with your underperformer. You want to start with your mid or top performer? You can do that because you're not sending the wrong message because everyone knows where you stand and what your intentions are. I like the idea of starting with someone who may already be doing this fairly well. I mean, after all, if you look at an underperformer and if you look at a top performer, chances are there are some great differences, not only in activity, but in the quality of activity, their output, as well as their organization and how they manage their day. So you can probably, and again, this is, I'm, I don't feel strongly about this. I'm kind of on both sides of the fence, but just giving you one point of view, you can go ahead and start with a top performer, see what they're doing, aggregate their best practices, see how it's working for them, and then use them as a a success story to carry through the rest of your team. Conversely, you can start with an underperformer that has no routine whatsoever, give them these skills because they're not utilizing any of them, and show how you can turn around an underperformer into someone who's performing better and is more efficient, effective, and has more control over their day. So again, there's two sides of the equation. I'd leave it up to every manager and their judgment call. Well, while we're on the topic of managers, um, of course, someone asked, look, I, you know, I, I buy what you say, and I think I can help my people, but boy, I've got a boss who wants me to answer his every call, and it's really not going to, uh, this is not going to be top of mind for him. So how do I have that conversation with, 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 a, with, a, with a big executive about what we're doing here? Yeah, uh, most uh, uh, Frontline or mid-level managers uh, react in a fearful way when they have to approach their boss around something like this. Uh, whether it's their boss isn't coaching them, they're not managing them the way they want to, they're overly directive, uh, uh, they're coaching in their own image, they like to coach from their soapbox, which is not coaching, by the way, uh, or they are very demanding. This is a great opportunity to actually coach up and reset expectations around how you want to be managed, how you want to be communicated to, uh, and what realistic expectations there are. I know some of you might be thinking, there's no way that would fly with my boss, but I challenge you on this. Have you tried it yet? And if you haven't, then how do you know? You're just making an assumption 
that it will not work. So I want to go ahead and take a step beyond and share that on my website, KeithRosen.com, I actually have another free ebook that I would encourage all of you to download, which is called Coach Up. It's 17 pages long. It's a really quick read, but what it has is about 12 different templates that you can use, the actual conversation and the messaging and the language that you can use in this very example of how you can go to your boss, coach up, enroll them in the conversation, and reset expectations. So that is one way to handle it. And now you will have the language if you download the book on how to do so. I think one person asking this question was afraid that that would become be seen as a as a personal request. How, how do you make sure that you stay away from it seeing like I want more time for my fam for my family and kids, which this person doesn't believe the boss will be particularly sympathetic to. Ah, Could you be worried God. about that? Well, it's interesting because, every, again, this goes back to phraseology, right? If, if we, we can't believe everyone shares the same values, goals, and priorities that, that we have compared to what others have. Some people are absolute workaholics and rather be in the office and be at home. Uh, some people would, quite frankly, like a little more balance and spend the time with the people that they care most about, their family and their children. And quite frankly, that's where I fall. So there might be a conflicting sense of what is a priority and what each person values, which is normal. I mean, that's all about individuality. However, I find that if you go to someone like your boss and, and say to your boss, hey, boss, I can really use your help around something. And again, I am a very literal person. That is the language that I would suggest you use. Hey, boss, I can really use your help around something. Because when you ask that question, I find universally it doesn't matter who you speak to. It's human nature to viscerally want to help someone. So they're going to respond with, well, yeah, sure. What can I help you with? Well, you know, I've been, I've been looking at my workload and, you know, I want to make you look good. I want to make sure that we achieve our business objectives. Uh, I was wondering if I can tap into your wisdom on how you've been able to successfully manage your time and manage your schedule so you still get to do the things that are important to you at home. Could you help me understand how you do it so maybe I can take away some tips as well? So if you notice what I've done is I didn't go to them and say, hey, boss, I need more time at home. I, I want to work less. That probably won't fly very well. But if you take the first approach, you're really tapping into their wisdom, asking for their help, and you've turned the entire conversation around. In essence, you've coached up. Uh, good advice. Okay, we have time for one last question, but it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a good one. I, I think it's probably something that everyone listening who really does want to do a good job, a better job, uh, thinks about, which is talk to us about how you draw the line between overcommitting and pushing yourself to really achieve some challenging goals. And, and how, would you, how do you make that distinction? How do you talk to people about, I'm, I'm going into a project that's going to take a lot of time, it's going to, but it's something I want to do. So talk to us a little bit about how you make that decision and how you communicate that to the people around you, particularly like your family and the colleagues you care about. So this is definitely a, a, a juicy question, and I'm looking at the clock, and 10 minutes to answer, 10 seconds to answer it, 9, 8, You can go a so little longer. You can go a I'll, little I'll, I'll try to go a minute, maybe a minute past the hour here. Okay. So first and foremost, when, when we're talking about, and, and I think it was personal goals, when it comes to personal goals, when I coach clients around this, and it doesn't matter if they're senior leader CEOs, frontline managers, or salespeople, uh, the first and foremost is how many goals are you setting for yourself? Most people will come, and they'll come with 10 goals. 
And I would challenge them to say, okay, now I want you to narrow it down to three. Okay, because if you're setting 10 goals for yourself, chances are you're already overcommitting to yourself. So number one, we need to set smaller goals. Three tops. Now, I'm going to explain why in a moment. Number two, they need to be specific and measurable and have a deadline associated to them. I don't suggest setting goals that are longer than one year uh, for several reasons. Number one, uh, after a year, first of all, your attention span and other people's attention span you might lose interest in that goal if it's too long. Number two, a year is tangible. You could work backwards over a 12-month period and build in those activities in your routine that are going to move you to that goal. And then finally, what I find is if you go beyond a year, if you go to like a two-year goal, a three-year goal, a five-year goal, that starts bleeding into your vision, which is fine. But once you finish the shorter-term goals, then you could pull out those other goals that you want to achieve in your life and bring those goals down to a one-year timeline. Now, there's one other point I want to make, I feel, which is pretty critical, is that if you look at your goals, and I do this with clients all the time, they'll send me, for example, 10 goals, and I'll look at their goals, and we'll go through them together, and inevitably, at least 50 to 70% of the goals that they shared can actually be baked into their routine. So, for example, they might put a goal of, Keith, I want to get in good shape. I want to eat healthy. I want to go to the gym. Great. Well, is that really a goal or is that a lifestyle? And we often collapse goals with lifestyles. So when I hear that, for example, it's all about taking that and baking that into your routine, putting the time into your schedule to go exercise, take a walk, go to the gym. Do what's going to bring you that level of health and vitality you want. So all of a sudden, we've taken that goal, and we've made it part of your lifestyle and part of your routine. So that's another way for you to relook at your goals and see, wait a second, is this something that's really a lifestyle, or is this a goal that has an endpoint? Lifestyle, something ongoing and continuous, not because it's not like you're ever going to stop wanting to be in shape. A goal, something that has a finite deadline. Great. That was a great answer, and we've got plenty more questions, but unfortunately we're out of time. So thank you so much. I want to thank you. I want to thank everyone for joining us today, and I want to thank Citrix GoToMeeting for making our discussion possible. Thank you, everyone. This concludes our presentation. Have a great day.